Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to talk about the inquest and Lizzie's decision to testify, which I consider one of the most shocking aspects of this case, one of the stupidest things I have ever seen a criminal defendant do. It was reckless. It was crazy. It was completely unnecessary. And to me, it is the ultimate proof of her willingness, desire, and inclination to take huge risks, to gamble, constantly gambling. These were huge gambles. Let me start with the fact that on Saturday night, August 6th, she was told that she was the subject of the investigation. She was the focus. No question. Jennings apparently already knew it. Emma already knew it. Jennings had only had a couple of days to get familiar with the case, to talk with the sisters, to interview any witnesses, Mrs. Churchill, Alice Russell, Dr. Bowen, etc. Jennings did not presumably know that the murders were going to happen, so he had his regular busy law schedule for Thursday, August 4th, Friday, August 5th, Monday, August 8th, Tuesday, August 9th. He I'm sure had a full schedule. He may have been expected to appear in court on some type of case or cases during those four or five business days. So I don't even know how easy it was for him to clear his schedule. I don't know how much time he actually had to devote to this case between when he first learned of it on the afternoon of August 4th until the inquest started on Tuesday, August 9th. He may have had a really limited amount of time to sit down with Lizzie and talk to her about the case and about the inquest and about what to expect. That alone would have been grounds for Jennings to say, you are not to testify at the inquest. That's number one. Number two, Jennings would have said, we haven't gotten discovery. We haven't gotten police reports. We haven't gotten forensic test results. We haven't gotten witness statements. We don't know what's out there. I don't know what the government has for evidence. We're going in there blind. I don't know what Knowlton is going to ask you. This is crazy. In addition, I'm not allowed to be there. Inquests are, in theory, supposedly fact-finding hearings. They're not supposed to be adversarial in nature. The state has not officially committed itself to a theory of the case. It has not formally charged anybody. The fact that Lizzie was the focus of the investigation did not make her the official suspect. Until she was charged, she was not the official suspect. Until she was charged, she and her attorneys were not entitled to police reports or other information that was in the possession of the police. As a result, this process was completely under the control of the district attorney. And if he wanted to exclude the defense attorney... He was allowed to do that, and that's exactly what he did. Jennings said, I want to be there, and Knowlton said, no, I I refuse. I'm not letting you in. And given everything I've told you, there's no way that Jennings would have been okay with this. He would have been adamant with Lizzie. This is the worst idea I have ever heard in my life. This is the worst decision you will ever make. You are crazy to do this. I can't believe you're not listening to me. He would have told her, this is not just your run-of-the-mill criminal case, Lizzie. This is a double murder. Everything is at stake, literally. Your life and your fortune. If you're convicted, you don't inherit anything from your father. And the best case scenario is your death sentence gets commuted. 
but if it's not commuted, you get hanged. That is what you're looking at. And when you go in there and testify at an inquest without a defense attorney present, without ever having testified before, without knowing what the government has for information, with nobody to object to the questions, with nobody to rehabilitate you, with nobody to argue any points of law, you're at terrible risk. And you have virtually nothing to gain from doing this. If you think you're going to convince Knowlton not to charge you simply because you agree to go in and testify, you're wrong. If he has enough evidence to charge you, he will charge you. It doesn't matter whether you go in or not. That isn't going to make a difference to him. And if that's the only motivation you have to show him that you're not guilty, you're not hiding, you have nothing to hide, that is not even close to being a justification for this. It's insane. And I can't believe you want to do this. This is the worst idea I have ever heard. And Jennings also would have told her, if the testimony does not go the way we would like it to, if you say some things that incriminate yourself, even though you're confident that won't happen, if you do that, and if this testimony comes in at trial, the jury's going to hear it. Whatever you say that is harmful to your case, whatever you say that can be interpreted against you and against your innocence, the jury may well hear it. There's no guarantee that we can keep this evidence from coming in at trial. And now, if you do testify, I don't know when I'll even see the transcript. It may be months. I may not know what you testified to. I can debrief you. I can sit you down right after you testify and say, what did he ask you? What did you say? That's not the same as me being there. That's not the same as me having a transcript. And I am not automatically entitled to a transcript of the inquest. It's not an adversarial hearing. Knowlton is setting you up. Don't you see that? This isn't a real inquest. A real inquest is designed to determine whether somebody died from natural causes or was murdered or committed suicide. He knows that these were murders. This is a sham. This is him trying to get evidence without me being present. It's, I believe, an abuse of the system, and you're playing right into his hands. And she insisted on testifying, even though she had never testified before, to my knowledge. So when she told him that she was going to testify, obviously Jennings would have had to drop everything. Whatever he had on his agenda, on his calendar, would have had to be continued, dismissed, delayed, whatever, because he would have needed to prepare her to testify. And in preparing her to testify, he would have covered certain areas that I'm sure you can anticipate, I could easily have anticipated, and probably Lizzie could have anticipated. It would start with, what do you know about your father's financial situation? What's your father worth? Did you ever talk to your father about money? Did your father have a will? Did your father have a settlement, marriage settlement agreement with your stepmother? Did you know anything about his plans? Well, that's pretty straightforward. And if you don't know, you can say, I don't know. And that's pretty much how it played out. But more worrisome is that he's going to ask you about where you were that morning. Where were you in the house? What time were you in this room? What time were you in that room? Apparently, from what we can tell, Bridget is saying that you were upstairs at 9.35 when she went out to wash the windows because she closed the windows in the sitting room and the dining room and you weren't there and you weren't in the kitchen. And she's saying that you were definitely upstairs when she came back in around 10.40 and you didn't come downstairs till about 10.50 or 10.55. 
and she heard you laughing upstairs when she let your father in, and we know that your stepmother was lying dead and had been lying dead for at least 45 minutes and maybe an hour and a quarter, 10 feet away from you. What are you going to say? Are you going to say you were up in your bedroom? Because that's what Bridget is essentially saying. That's where Bridget is placing you. What are you going to say? And then he's going to ask, how did you not hear the attack? How did you not hear the murder? Or are you going to say, I was downstairs, I was in the kitchen, I was in the sitting room, I was in the dining room? If so, how do you explain that somebody got past you in order to get up the front stairs and kill Mrs. Borden? Because you and I both know the layout of the house. And we know there's no way that if you're downstairs in any of those three rooms, there's virtually no way that someone can get past you in order to get up the stairs and kill her. You don't want to be in that position. And he must have gone over Lizzie's answers. I don't know what she told him, but I can tell you what she told Knowlton. So let's talk about that. Sorry, before I go any further, I also want to point out, and Jennings would have pointed out to her, on top of everything else, Lizzie, we now know you burned the dress on Sunday morning. Alice Russell told the Pinkerton detective who told me, so I know you burned the dress. Alice Russell is going to be a witness. She may get asked, even if Knowlton doesn't know you burned the dress, even if he has no idea, he may stumble across this, or Alice may blurt it out, or Alice may volunteer it. And you may feel confident and secure that Alice wouldn't do that, but you don't know. You never know how someone is going to handle pressure when they're testifying. Everybody has their own way of reacting to stress. And you simply don't know, and I don't know. And this is another enormous risk that you're running. So here's what Knowlton asked her, and here's what she said. She changed her testimony a number of times, and I think that if her inquest testimony had come in, I think it would have caused some real problems for her. She started out by saying that she thought her father left the house for the downtown around 9 o'clock, and that's actually when he did leave, give or take a few minutes. She first claimed that she was in the kitchen when he returned at 10.45. We know that's not true. We know she was upstairs, so that directly contradicts Bridget's testimony. She said she was in the kitchen reading a magazine and waiting for the irons to heat up, the flats. Now, she claims that right around the time her father left to go downtown, she was waiting for the irons to get hot. So however long her father was out of the house, from 9 to 10.45, almost two hours, she's sitting in the kitchen reading old magazines, waiting to get the stove hot enough to get the irons hot enough. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. She knows how to build a fire. Anybody from that era, anybody born in 1860, knew how to heat up a cook stove. I don't care who you were. It's crazy to say that she didn't know how to get the stove hot enough. It's absurd. But that's her story initially. Then when she was asked, are you sure you were in the kitchen? She said, well, maybe I was in the dining room when he got back. So then he said, well, tell me where you were from the time you got up. Your father returned around 1045. And she said that when she came down a few minutes before nine on Thursday morning, that her father was in the sitting room reading a paper and her stepmother was in the dining room dusting with a feather duster and Bridget was heading out to wash the windows. She had a bucket. She had the brush. Now, we know that Bridget didn't go out until about 9.35, not 10 minutes of nine. We know that Bridget went out into the backyard and got sick for 10 or 15 minutes, came back in and had half an hour's worth of cleaning up and chores to do before she could even start washing the windows. So that timeline is wrong. 
Then she was asked whether she was upstairs when her father returned, and she said no. She said, I was not up there, I was in the kitchen. And then, out of the blue, a couple of questions later, or a few questions later, she says, I think I was upstairs when he came back. I think I was actually coming down the stairs when he was trying to get in the front door. So now she's saying something that's consistent with Bridget. When she was asked, well, after your father was allowed into the house around 1045, didn't you see Bridget washing the windows on the inside? Wasn't she in the sitting room and then in the dining room washing the windows? And Lizzie says, no. Lizzie says, the last I saw of her was when she let my father in. I didn't see her again. I didn't see her washing windows. I didn't talk to her. Well, we know that's not true. We know that she was in the dining room when Bridget was finishing up washing the windows because she brought the little, the ironing board in. And we know that she had two brief conversations with Bridget that she initiated. The first one was about the sale of cheap dress goods. And the second one was locking up the house if she went out because Mrs. Borden had gotten a note someone was sick in town. We know that. And yet she's claiming she had no conversations with her. She didn't see her again after she saw her or was aware of her allowing Mr. Borden, letting Mr. Borden in through the front door. Knowlton stops and says, you've changed your story you're going back and forth. Where were you when your father came back? And then she said, I was downstairs. And she sticks with that version from then on. He asks how long she thought her father had been gone. We know he left around nine and he got back around 1045. So we know it was an hour and 45 minutes, give or take a few minutes. She said, oh, I don't think he was gone long. And Knowlton said, well, was he gone an hour or more? And she goes, no, I don't think he was even gone an hour. It's crazy, ridiculous. It makes no sense unless she's intentionally trying to muddy the waters. He asks if she went back up to her bedroom at any point after she first came down at 10 minutes of 9. And she said, I went up once, I brought it some clean clothing, I basted some tape onto a piece of clothing. I don't know what that means. Sewed a piece of tape onto clothing, I'm not sure. And she said the whole thing took at most five minutes. And she said, now that I think about it, actually, I did all that before my father left to go downtown. We know that's not true. We know from Bridget's testimony that she was upstairs at 9.35 or thereabouts, and again, when Mr. Borden came home at 10.45. So the idea that she was not back up in her room at any time after her father left to go downtown around 9 is ridiculous. She said the last time she saw her stepmother was, was when her stepmother was in the dining room dusting. Now, apparently, she told Fleet that the last time she'd seen her stepmother was when she, Lizzie, was headed downstairs and she looked into the guest bedroom and saw her, saw her stepmother making the bed or putting on some new pillowcases. So that's a different story. Knowlton wants to know exactly what Mrs. Borden told Lizzie about the sick note, about anything else, where Mrs. Borden was, where everybody else was at the time. Lizzie's final version on that is, when she encountered Mrs. Borden in the dining room, Mrs. Borden told her that she was going out, that someone was sick, she'd gotten a note, and she said, what do you want for lunch? And Lizzie said, I don't want anything. And Mrs. Borden had said, well, I'll be going out to get something for lunch anyway. It's interesting because at that point, Lizzie has already gotten Bridget out of the house to wash the windows. Interesting, isn't it? Even though Bridget didn't leave until 9.35. The reason it's interesting is because Mrs. Borden always told Bridget where she was going whenever she left the house. That was the one person Mrs. Borden always kept in the loop. So Lizzie gets her out of the house somewhere in the barn or the backyard, 
And that's about the best Lizzie can do to explain why Mrs. Borden wouldn't have said, oh, Bridget, by the way, I've got a a note, somebody's sick, the so-and-so family is sick, I've got to go down. I think that's why Lizzie said that Bridget was washing the windows half an hour before she was actually washing them. But what's also interesting is that according to this version, Mr. Borden is still at home. Mr. Borden's in the sitting room. Mr. Borden's looking at the newspaper, and Mrs. Borden is telling Lizzie about getting the note to ask that she come down and help the sick family or respond to the sick note. But remember that when Mr. Borden comes back at 1045, Lizzie immediately volunteers to him that Mrs. Borden got a note that someone was sick. Why wouldn't Mrs. Borden have told her husband, I'm going out, somebody's sick, this family is sick, or that family is sick, and I don't know when I'll be back? Why would she have told Lizzie, the person of the three people that were in the house at the time, the person that she was least comfortable with, the person that she was least likely to confide in? That's the person she tells about the sick note. It doesn't make sense. He asks her whether she said to anybody that he had heard Mrs. Borden return. And she said, no, I never said that to anybody. Did you say you thought you heard her come back? No, didn't tell that to anybody. We know she said that to at least Bridget and Mrs. Churchill. They're both clear about that. What she says is, I did ask people. She didn't identify who. She just said people, people who are coming to the house. I did ask them to see if Mrs. Borden was in her room. Well, she knew Mrs. Borden wasn't in her bedroom as soon as Bridget and Mrs. Churchill came back downstairs with a sheet. And that was around 11.15, 11.20 at the latest, because Dr. Bowen had asked somebody to go up and get a sheet to cover Mr. Borden's body. The sheets were kept in Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom. So Lizzie would have known at that time that Mrs. Borden wasn't in her bedroom. And Lizzie was at the back door for the rest of the morning until she went into the kitchen. She was either at the back door or in the kitchen. Either way, she would have known whether Mrs. Borden had come in and gone up to her room. So again, it makes no sense. Why say to somebody five or ten minutes after the sheet has been obtained, oh, will you go up and see if she's in her room? They were just up there five or ten minutes before and nobody has walked past Lizzie to get up the back stairs. It makes no sense. She's asked whether she ever left the house from the time she came down in the morning until she went out to the yard and or the barn after her father returned, and she said no. She places herself in the house for the entire time. She commits to that. Apparently, the only reference she makes to using the bathroom the entire morning was she said after she came down, she went into the kitchen briefly, then went down and used the bathroom She was there for maybe five minutes, came up, and apparently that's the only time she used the bathroom all morning. And that was apparently before Mr. Borden had left. She also said that when she left her father alone in the house before he was killed, when she went out to the yard and then to the barn, that he had already laid down on the sofa and taken his shoes off and put on slippers. When asked exactly what she did in the barn, she said she went out into the yard She picked up a few pairs. She looked around. She was out in the yard for maybe five or 10 minutes, just kind of spaced out, looking up at the barn, not doing anything in particular. Then she went into the barn. She went up to the loft. She thought she'd eaten three pears in the loft. Then she went and very slowly and nonchalantly went through a basket that was on a workbench up in the loft looking for lead. She didn't find any sinkers. She wanted sinkers for her fishing gear. Didn't find any. There were a lot of questions about why didn't you just buy sinkers? Did you have the rest of your fishing gear? Apparently, she had no fishing gear at all. She had some fishing gear at the farm in Swansea, which was in the wrong direction. She was not going to be going out to Swansea to pick up her fishing gear. 
she was going to have to buy new lines and apparently a new pole and just trying to save herself a, a very small amount of money by looking for sinkers in the barn. And Knowlton kept asking her, why not just buy everything at once? What And what made you think there were sinkers in the barn anyway? And she simply said, well, father said there was lead in the barn. And Knowlton said, well, were they sinkers or was it just lead? And Lizzie said, well, it turns out it was just lead. It, there were actually no lead sinkers. He said, what took you so long and what else did you do? And basically she said, well, between eating the pears, looking in the basket, moving some boards around to get at the basket, going over to one of the windows and straightening the curtain, that took five to 10 minutes. So if you add the time I spent in the yard, five minutes or so, five to 10 minutes, and then another five or 10 minutes in the loft, that accounts for my time outside the house. So how damning was this testimony? Well, I'll admit it could have been worse. I'll admit there was no Perry Mason moment. She didn't say, yes, yes, I did it. Oh, my God. I admit it. I I killed them both. No, she didn't do that. I don't think Knowlton expected her to. But the contradictions were ridiculous because one way to look at her testimony is that where there was nobody to contradict her, in other words, where Bridget had no input, where in other words, Bridget didn't see her up in the loft, That's all clear. Lizzie's like, this is what I did. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. It's all in sequence. It's all clear. It's only the testimony that has to be matched up with Bridget's. That's where she's bouncing around. And I think what she was doing was she was just trying to muddy the waters. Rather than commit herself to one line of, you know, one version of events, she wanted to make it as confusing as possible. For instance, she was asked, why did you say you were on the stairs? And Lizzie said, oh, that was another day. I had that confused with another day when Bridget was letting someone in the front door. It wasn't actually August 4th that I was coming down the stairs. It was another day. I can't remember when. But that was what I was thinking of. It's awfully convenient that she's vague about where Bridget was, when she saw Bridget, what she said to Bridget, or she just has these gaps in her memory. And yet, whenever she's testifying about something that nobody can directly contradict, she's very clear. And I think, in my mind, that's suspicious. I think she would have remembered, if she can remember all of the other details of that day, I think she would have remembered where she was when her father came back. I think she would have remembered when her father left, or she'd have a pretty good idea. And she can't explain anything about the note. She doesn't know who delivered it, why it came, when it came. She just can't provide any answers. She just gives this vague, she told me there'd been a note and she was going out. And So I suppose you could say that she ended up looking out here. They didn't, the prosecution was not able to get the testimony in. That was the biggest win for her. As I said, I don't know how much of a difference it would have made in terms of the outcome of the trial. It would have put pressure on her. It would have been put pressure on her defense team if that testimony had come in. And if, on top of that, the drugstore testimony had come in, the defense team might have felt almost compelled to put her on the stand at trial. I don't know if they would have, but they would have had a lot more to worry about. And so, in the end, almost everything broke their way. One other thing that broke their way, it's really interesting, the jurors were sequestered. They were kept in a hotel for the 15 days of the trial. They weren't allowed access to newspapers. This was the days, obviously, before television and radio. They were basically under guard with the bailiffs or the sheriff's deputies, so they had no access to the news. A few days before the trial started, when they were still in the community, these 12 jurors were still in the community, there was an axe murder. 
not in Fall River itself, but very close, a, a town that was nearby. A woman was killed from behind, savagely. Someone killed her with an axe or a hatchet. That's in the papers. I'm sure the jurors read it. I'm sure they were aware of it. And before it got solved, they got sequestered. So they go into this trial knowing that Lizzie could not have committed this axe murder. She'd been locked up for 10 months. They knew that. But there was an axe murderer in the community on the loose. I mean, you talk about a lucky break. It turns out that the person who committed the murder was a farmhand and he confessed to it. And it had nothing to do with Lizzie in any sense. But it was just an awfully good piece of luck and one of many things that broke her way. Okay, when we come back, there will be other things to talk about. I will keep you in suspense. I won't tell you what they are. But I hope you tune in. And until next week, take care. Take care.